We are in part four of our Building God's Way series, and I entitled today's message, Keys to Successful Spiritual Building. Keys to Successful Spiritual Building. I'm going to draw your attention in a moment here to the fill in the blank if you have the app open, or maybe you just want to take some notes, but here's a couple ideas as we begin. To build God's way, and that's this whole series, in this whole year of becoming, right? If you're brand new to the church here at Bridgeway, we do yearly themes. That means that for a whole year, we're going to be diving into one element of our faith and growing with the Lord. And this is the year of becoming, becoming all that God designed us to be. Now, in this series, Building God's Way, we want to talk about what would it mean to either restart that process, engage with that process for the first time, or just put on a brand new edition from Jesus, right? We're building in him. So here's what I was thinking. To build God's way is going to require knowing God and knowing what he wants. We're not building our kingdom. We're building his. We're not building whatever we want. We're building whatever he wants. If we build our lives on the brilliance of mankind, then it cannot withstand anything outside of what mankind throws at it. But... If we build according to the will of God, it can withstand anything natural and supernatural. You see, our heart is to build what God can build. Our desire in our heart is to become the type of lives that are Jesus bulletproof. You understand what I'm talking about? Our desire in our hearts is to awaken everything that the Holy Spirit wants to awaken in us and everything that Jesus bought and everything that the Father built into us, amen? That's really what we're trying to do. Now, we've been talking a lot about building blocks throughout this series and talking about practical things we need to do. And that was things like what? Reading the Bible every day, right? As I've been sharing with you, over 900 of us are all doing the daily Bible reading reminders and the daily, what, gratitude prompts to be able to live lives of gratitude and thankfulness. But there's another element to that, and that is a commitment to being together, whether that is online or that is right here in the room, we need to be together. We're gonna talk a lot about that today. Now these are all practical ways of getting you shirred up and, and to build a solid foundation that is founded on God alone. But let's answer the question, why is that so important? Here's the fill in the blank on that app or if you wanna write down these notes. God is at the center of all great work. God is at the center of all great work. I would hope that at some point in your spiritual walk, you come to the maturity where you are unimpressed by what mankind can create, and you're only impressed by what God makes. I would hope that some point along your development, you look out and you are not quite as amazed at things that are about money as much as things that are about heaven. That maybe as we kind of, as we kind of assess and, and we kind of put little things on our mantle where we're like, man, I would love to do that. And what about this goal? And what about this dream? And what about this idea? And, and I really look up to this person. I look up to this group. I would hope those begin to shift throughout our time of growing with the Lord to where we're more impressed by revival than Berkshire Hathaway. Now, that's Warren Buffett's group, right? 
one of the wealthiest men in the world. I, I would hope that maybe we're less amazed by power moves and we're more amazed by supernatural moves. That we want to build and found in this world, in our society, stuff that will last, stuff that matters, stuff that's eternal. And if we're gonna do a great work like that, you're only gonna be able to build it if God is at the center of it, amen? Amen. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to keep him at the center at all times. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to keep him at the center at all times. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter seven. Uh, if you're reading out of the uh, ESV along with me, it might be around page 402, 403. Kind of a little bit more towards the left of your Bible if you're dropping it open in the middle there, right? And we're gonna jump into a story that we've been at for a couple weeks and we're talking about a man who God called out and said, I want you to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. It had been torn down and the Jews had been cast out. But 93 years before Nehemiah, they were allowed to go back in their land. The problem is, when a mighty nation comes and decimates your place, tears down your walls, burns your gates, you have nothing to go back to. So the people that went back kind of lived scattered. They lived kind of nomadic. There's no point in being in Jerusalem if there's no wall of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah went back as a third wave leading the Jews back. The first one was just getting back in the land. The second one was by a man named Ezra, the priest. He rebuilt a temple so they could honor the Lord. And now here comes Nehemiah 13 years after Ezra and he's going to rebuild the city. Well, we found out in the story that anytime you try to do something awesome, there's always opposition. And people tore him apart, and they scared him, and they threatened him, and they attacked him, and, and yet they still got the walls built to half the height in record time. Things are looking up, and it was about time for them to break for celebration and spend some time with God. That's where we're at in the story. Let's go ahead and pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, in the first wave. And I found written in it, quote, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, the whole rest of that chapter is a list of people, right? Now, in that list of people, you're going to find a couple interesting things, but, but we're going to kind of skip past that because it's technically old news. Why? It is an exact quote from the book of Ezra, chapter 2. All he did was take that, and if you pull them over, they're saying the same stuff. The numbers are slightly different, but the end numbers are the same, and it's just an almost identical list. So why is he reading through that? Well, he's trying to examine who got here and what have they done in the last 93 years. Here's what he found out. About 50,000 people went in the first wave and went home. And you go, 50,000 people? You can do a lot with 50,000 people. Well, kind of. Remember, these people were in exile. They were not wealthy. They were not 
powerful. They were not anything. They had really been slaves for, what, a bunch of years before that. So when they got back, they really had nothing to build. So they just said, well, we're home. Two of the groups, what you'll find out in the list, could not prove their lineage. So they got bumped into the waiting line. One group was just general people and they're like, hey, I need your papers. I need you to prove that you're a Jew because we're kind of doing the Jewish thing and everything fell apart when we weren't fully Jewish. So we're kind of being a stickler about this. And they're like, yeah, I don't have my papers. They're like, all right, well, until you can find them, we're just gonna hold you off. You don't get any of the civic blessings of being a Jew. But there was also a priest group and the priest group couldn't prove that they were Jewish or prove that they were legitimate priests. And so they were marked out. You were not allowed to be in the temple, not allowed to do what you were supposed to do until they could get someone in there to clear it up. All right, so we have a little bit of chaos. But here's what's interesting to me. At the end of that chapter, it starts counting up how much over the time people gave to the rebuilding effort. It is in the millions and millions of dollars. One estimate is that in silver alone, it would equate to today's $330 million. Why are these people who have just come out of exile, and yeah, they must have rich relatives and all this stuff, why are they doing a building project of what, upwards of half a billion dollars? in today's money? Why are they doing that? Why put that much money into this project? Well, in one sense, it's just a great work because they're going home. The worst thing that ever happened in their history was getting kicked out of their land. They're back in their promised land and this is their capital city, the holy city of Jerusalem. Why wouldn't you wanna go back? Why wouldn't you wanna rebuild? Why don't you not want the temple? I mean, it's everything, right? But there's another reason. Because as of this point, the walls hadn't even been built when this was written. All they had was the temple. So why would you give that much money to God? Quick question for you. Why do you give of your money to the church? Why do you give of your money to the Lord? Do you give it because God's struggling, right? He's trying to make ends meet here. Right? Of course not. Well, why do you give to the Lord? Because I'll tell you, whatever those motivations are, are probably the motivations that motivated them as well. I think they knew that if they did not invest in the Lord, it was very likely they were going to have a hard time keeping him in the center of what they were building. I think they were smart enough to know that if they built everything other than him, it would take their attention and it would distract them and keep them from becoming all that they needed to be. I don't know where you're at on the giving. Praise the Lord, we're in a church that is significantly large enough that we have brilliant people watching over the finances of the church. Do you understand that I am involved in numbers, I am not involved at all in who gives what? That's important to me because I don't want you to ever assume anything about how I interact with you. Other people are taking a look at that. 
So I don't know whether or not you give or don't give. But I do know this. Have you considered why you do it, if you do it? Have you ever considered what happens if you don't? And I'm not talking about what's going to happen to the church. I'm talking about what's going to happen to your heart. Because when it's all about you, things go awry. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep moving forward. Pick it up in chapter 7, verse 74. It's the end of the chapter. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, of all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water, guard, water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And it says a little later, and as he opened it, all the people stood. It's the seventh month. Now, here's the funny thing about reading the Bible. You got to remember, when these books were written, everybody knew what they were talking about. And they were like, hey, so it was in the seventh month, and then all the Jews are like, aha, seventh month. I know that one, right? The month of Tishri, it is kind of like our October, but there's something special about the seventh month that when the story kind of rolls into that, you were supposed to already in your mind go, oh, that's a holy month. Why? Because there was three major festivals that happened during this month. It was a lot of activity, a lot of religious stuff. So it was the Feast of Trumpets at the beginning. It was the Day of Atonement along the way. And then it was the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. But here's what's interesting. It says, and all the people came together as one man. No matter what you hear moving forward, understand all the activity going on was community activity. It was what we're doing right here, right now, where we're all together, right? And once again, whether or not we're online or we're in this room, we're together. So we're doing something, an activity, a religious activity together. So they were all together as one man. I want to get real practical with you for a moment because COVID has kind of wrecked our habits, right? Have you noticed that? Like, man, boy, did they get us out of the groove. Whether or not you used to go to the gym and then COVID hit, it's like, do you realize we're coming up on a year of lockdown. It was like, wow, that is, this is, now in one way you go, wow, that was fast. Another way you went, it feels like 1,000 years, right? But it, it threw all of our patterns off, all of our habits off. We had to come up with all new things. And the unfortunate thing is sometimes it was just the habit patterns that kept us healthy, right? And they all got disrupted. Well, one of those patterns is that we used to have a full church, right? Because we were all coming together in one thing, and then, of course, a lot of stuff got derailed. Now, once again, I am not going to blame anybody 
for not being in this environment. Once again, you do what you need to do. Here's what I'm going to say. Just make sure you're still engaging consistently because what we're doing together, you cannot duplicate alone. And I'm going to tell you why. Here's a list of seven things off the top of my head as I was writing these down. There's seven reasons of what's going on here that is not going on when you're all by yourself. Number one, the intensified presence of God. The intensified presence of God. God does different stuff when his people are together than when we're by ourselves. Which isn't that normal? I mean, that's totally normal. I don't yell this much at home. Right, I'm just all by myself, walking around yelling in my room. That wouldn't even make any sense. You see, we do different things. Imagine, and you're like, well, God can be powerful anywhere. Yes, he can. But once again, you have the Holy Spirit, and 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 you have the Holy Spirit. Now, all of a sudden, we're all coming together, and there's not an intensification. Man, sometimes you just need to come to church to sit in a thick environment of God. Number two, the use of the gifts of the Spirit. They happen in community, not alone. How do we know that? Look at how they're all designed. The teaching gift is dumb alone. The gift of helps is even more dumb alone. They're all built to be used collectively. If we're not collectively together, your gift starts not making sense. So you can use it and other people can use it. That's great. Number three. Corporate praise and worship. We're going to be talking about that today. Corporate praise and worship. We give this collective, powerful offering to God. Number four, kingdom buying power. Kingdom buying power. We can accomplish more when we put our money together than we ever could do separately. There is stuff that this church has accomplished that you would never have been able to do all by yourself. Number five, group dynamic ministry. What do I mean? Laying on of hands. I don't know how many of you have been involved in ministry throughout your life where you're very passionate about praying for people, but one of the things that really was difficult for me throughout COVID was the inability to touch. I'm a hugger, I'm a handshaker. I'm a guy who lays hands on whenever I pray for you. And when we're not together, I can't do that, right? So it's laying on of hands, it's praying for one another in person, it's someone to listen to you while they're looking you in the eye and not through Zoom, right? Number six, good peer pressure. Good peer pressure happens here, it doesn't happen in alone, right? You can tell in a crowd whether or not what is being said is either something they're going, man, that's, that's important, that's powerful, or it's wrong. But there's a certain safety of going, man, we're all in this together, right? Like if something really goes wrong, some alarm is going to go off. There's a peace and a safety being together and an ability to discern. Number seven, just human interaction. Human interaction, the ability to meet new people, talk with friends, laugh together, experience together, debrief together. That's here. So they all come together and Ezra steps up. Now, Ezra's a huge deal. Remember I told you in the first part of this series that Ezra and Nehemiah used to be called first Ezra and second Ezra. Well, there's a reason why it wasn't called first Nehemiah and second Nehemiah. 
because Ezra's a bigger deal. Nehemiah helped build. He's the governor, but Ezra's the priest. He was the religious leader of the area, so he steps up on this wooden platform, and he starts to read the Bible. Now, this is on the Feast of Trumpets Day, which you go, what is a Feast of Trumpets? Quite frankly, it sounds a little irritating. Here's why. It starts off with a trumpet blast, and then throughout the day, a series of trumpet blasts. Right? So you're just walking around, you're eating, and you're like, whoa, what in the, and just keep, you know, and the idea is it's constantly calling out to God. It's a signal. God, we're here. We need you. God, we're here. We need you. And it just goes out throughout the day. So on this day, they do the trumpet blast. Ezra takes the stage and starts to read out of the word of God. I'm going to give you four reasons why we need a steady diet of the word of God. You ready? Write this down. Number one, it tells you what God is thinking. It tells you what God is thinking. So this answers the key question. How do you know what God is thinking? Are you so amazingly connected to the Lord that in your prayer time, you can hear him accurately every time? Because if you're not, where are you getting your information? It's probably coming through somebody else. And if that's the case, there's always a possibility they're sharing not the full picture. That they have an agenda when they're sharing it, right? So unless you get to engage with the word of God on your own, you can't make sure whether or not that's really what God said. So it helps you know what God is thinking. He wrote so much so he would share his heart. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Number two, it transforms your mind. It transforms your mind. It changes what you think about. What you think about changes your behavior. Your behavior changes your lifestyle. Number three, the Holy Spirit uses it to steer your life. When you're reading the word of God, he will highlight and illuminate different pieces every time. You're like, I don't remember ever seeing that before. I don't remember ever seeing that before. That's because the Holy Spirit is doing something supernatural while you're reading. Think of it this way. I've been teaching a really, really long time, and every time I look at the Word of God, I have another message that I can teach out of the same exact thing. So let's say that any given passage has 382 messages. When you read it, you only see one or two. Why didn't you see all the others? Because the Holy Spirit said, that's not for you right now, this is for you right now. So he directs you and guides you. It's a very personal way of reading the word of God. Super neat. And then number four, let's close that out. It keeps you anchored to the truth. It keeps you anchored to the truth. This world has so many opinions. Everybody's talking about what's legit, what's right, what's science, what's not, what this is, what that is, how the world started, how this went. You just need an anchor to be able to say, man, I can study that stuff, but please bring me back to the truth. That's what the Bible does. You see, if we're going to build God's way, we need to keep him in the center at all times. And that's being together, and that's reading his word, yeah? Let's pick it up in chapter 8, verse 6, just one verse here. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now that's an intense worship service. Why? They just did three things. Public blessing of God, amen, lifting up their hands, then a bowing in humility where they changed their posture, and then a worshiping with their faces to the ground. 
Why do we do the first 35 minutes of our service that we do every time? I always want to come back to this. Because here's a big mistake most people have about what we're doing when we're singing together. Even some worship leaders have this perspective, and they have it, and it's very humble, and it's very sweet. It's just wrong. And here's their viewpoint. We are prepping for the sermon. Like it's a warm-up. And once we get warmed up, then the power comes out on the stage, and then they're going to preach. That is incorrect. It is biblically incorrect. You see... What we do in those first 35 minutes could be the only thing we do, and it's sufficient. Why? Because why are we here? To bring glory to the name of God. What did we just do in the first 35 minutes? Bring glory to God. What else do you want to do? Right? Like, that is it. That is an important, critical piece all by itself. It's why here at Bridgeway, we'll do worship nights. And we didn't have any teaching. It was just worship the whole time. That is valid. It's like having a prayer night where you only do prayer and there was no teaching and it's legit, right? All of those are standalone events. It's not a warm-up band, right? Man, you gotta get the people all ready so that when the pastor comes out, then boom. No, there is a way those tie in together, but that's not the purpose. So what are we doing? We do what's called praise and worship, and those are actually two different things. And I gotta explain this because it'll be a little bit more helpful about how you do it here. Do you understand that there is corporate worship and there's private worship? And they're actually different. You see, worship is engaging with God and reflecting on his greatness. When you're by yourself in your house doing worship, it is just the two of you. It's just you connecting with him. That's it. But when you're here, corporate worship is not just about you and him. It's about you, him, and your hundreds of closest friends. Corporate worship's different than private worship. Why? Because what we're trying to do is collectively all connect to the Lord at the same time to bring in one big offering in the same direction. So it's not helpful for you to go, I'm just going to do it like I do at home. It should be different here. But praise is even diff more different. Almost a differenter. That's not a word. <laughs> praise is even more different, right? Praise is the proclamation of who God is and what he does. Now, what's the point about proclamation? It's out loud. Praise is not done silently, okay? Now, when you're at home, have you ever done praise? And usually the way that you think you would do that is you turn on a CD of praise and you sing to God. That's how you do praise at home, right? Or maybe you have your own guitar or maybe you have your own song and you're just singing that song to the Lord. But the only point in singing it to him, if it's praise, is if there's an audience, Worship you can do without an audience. Praise, nope. Who's the audience at home? This is about to freak you out, ready? The supernatural world. When you are singing those songs, angels join in, 
and demons are notified. They're the audience listening. But when we come here, it shifts. Our audience is not just the supernatural realm, it's each other. When you praise, we are all supposed to stir each other up to sing the same stuff and go in the same direction and get everybody fired up. The point is, you're supposed to know you're with a group of people. You go, okay, this sounds so simplistic. What is your point? Here's my point. How many times have you gone, gone into church to a praise service and tried to block everyone out in your mind? To me, happens all the time. I gotta get my head in the game. I gotta, I gotta, it's just you and the Lord, you and the Lord, man. Let's block everybody out. Close your eyes. Nobody's here. Nobody's here. Do you understand that ruins the entire purpose of praise? You do that at home. You don't do it here. Here, you're supposed to have your eyes open, looking around, realizing we're all in the room with you, and you're firing us up, and we're firing you up, and we're all lifting up a big praise to the Lord, and our whole audience is not just the demons and angels, but it is every one of us, and if anyone comes into this church that doesn't yet know the Lord, they're supposed to hear a huge group singing the praises of God. It doesn't make sense silently. If you are a silent worshiper or a silent praiser, you better believe that angels and demons can read your mind because if they can't, you're not doing anything. Ah. Let's pick it up. Oh, let me highlight one more thing. Notice what the people said. It says, and all the people said, amen, amen. I wanna talk about amening in a sermon. Okay, amening in a sermon is super important for a collective experience because what it is, is if everyone's quiet, and we've all been trained to be quiet because we all grew up in school and in school, while the teacher's teaching, you don't go, amen. <laughs> Preach it, math teacher. <laughs> Nobody says that. We all just kind of stare awkwardly and we're just trying to listen. And we're all trying to learn, and this is a learning environment, so we've carried that forward, so we don't do amens. And the reason why we don't do amens is mostly out of deference and kindness to the person talking. You're not trying to draw attention to yourself, and you're not trying to break up the, the, the movement and the momentum, right? Okay, but here's the problem. Have you ever talked to a group of people? Your faces are not quite as active as you might imagine. Praise the Lord for masks. I just pretend everybody is locked <laughs> until your head droops to the side and you start <laughs> drooling out of your mask. Then I know you're asleep. But do you understand that, that like, I don't know what's going on in your head. Like you're inside going, man, rock it. That's good, pastor. Yeah, that's good. Okay, I don't know that. That's happening in your head. That's not happening out here. So all whole time, I'm like, anybody with me? Anyone with me? Anyone with me? And then all of a sudden, somebody's like, amen. And then you're on the other side of the room, and you're like, yeah, that was a good point. Good point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, you just got somebody else to get into it. Now they're suddenly paying attention. Like, Did I miss something? Right? And then someone else is saying amen. Now here's the big problem of doing amen in this church. I'm the worst preacher for amening. Amen. <laughs> That's right, sister. 
it's supposed to go is that I'm supposed to present something to you and actually give you space to amen. But I just steamroll right over the top of everybody. You try to amen me, I will talk right over you. I'm an amen crusher. And I know, I get it, right? And so, in the, you know, trying to work with a style, but here's what I'm assuming. Here's what I'm assuming. I got a super loud mic. You're not going to shut me down. I'm already yelling, right? So it's not like you're going to be louder than me. And so while I'm talking, I'm assuming that while I'm going, I'm not going to stop for you, but you're just going to drop bombs of amen all over the place, and I'm going to keep going and going and going, and you're still amening. That's what I assume. That doesn't always happen. So you and I have a little dance to work out here to figure out what to do. But it's really neat. The whole purpose of amen, and this is funny, when you go into different uh, environments and cultures, that in the other culture, the amening is the way of encouraging the teacher. I'm with you. I got you. You're not just speaking into dead air. And then there's other cultures, and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Be quiet so they can still talk. Don't disrupt me. Right? So you're trying to feel out the culture and go, I don't know what you, we're going to work on this. Okay? Because we're going to, I got to tell you, every preacher that comes up here and when it is a dead silent room just staring at them, man, that is daunting. You're not sure if you're getting any points across. Right? So at some point we will grow and learn about that and how we should do that. All right, let's pick it up in chapter 8, verse 7. Let's talk about the Levites in verse 7. And the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to him, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Okay, this is really important. The Levites are temple workers. What did they do? They did three things. They proclaimed the word of God, and you go, well, Ezra was already reading. Yeah, but there's 50,000 people there. How are they supposed to hear the dude on the platform? There's no mic. So whenever he would read, they would station out among everybody, and they would read. So they proclaim. The second one is it says they explain the word. That's what I do. Hey, you just read this, I'm gonna explain it to you. And you go, oh, I get it. Because if you're just hearing something read to you and you don't understand it, what's the point? And then the third thing they did was ministry. It says they calmed the people and redirected them. Because everyone was freaking out about what they just heard. So this gets into something that's super bizarre. The people were crying, and the leadership came in and said, stop crying. You're going to be happy today. <laughs> right? It's a celebration day. That all sounds really weird, but let me explain why. First of all, why were they crying? Because what they just read was saying God had more for them 
and they weren't even close. And they weren't even doing the stuff he asked them to do. And that broke their hearts. How cool that they had soft hearts to the word of God. You go, yeah, but they were crying. I get that. Do you understand that there's a difference between pastoral conviction and God conviction? Here's what I mean. There's times when I'm gonna say something as a pastor and it's gonna make you feel bad. That is valuable for culture building. We're talking about what we are excited about, what we are not excited about, what's good, what's bad. That's culture setting. But when there's God conviction, that's life transforming. I can't control that. That's between you and the Lord that while I'm talking, if the Holy Spirit starts to minister to your heart and you start going, man, pastor's not even addressing that piece, but inside I'm like, man, that is not what I wanna do. Wow, God, you're calling me to something more. That's a God conviction. My prayer and what I pray with my prayer team before all the service sets is that. God, you minister to the hearts of the people. I can't control that. You're all coming in from different aspects. I don't know what you need, but the Holy Spirit does. And the last thing I'll say on that one is they told them all to stop crying. Why? Because they knew full well that on the celebration day, it had to be about God and not about the people. The people are like, oh, I'm so broken, I'm a terrible person. They're like, yeah, you might be. However, today we're focusing on the goodness of Jesus. So y'all need to stop your own drama and let's get into God's stuff. And they commanded people to rejoice. Why is rejoicing a command in scripture so often? Seems weird, be happy, dang it. Because the Bible knows that we are not as in control of our mind and body as we think we are. And sometimes we need to redirect our attention it's very easy to fall into depression. It's very easy to fall into anxiety. It's very easy to fall into distraction. And sometimes you need to re-rack and say, God is worthy. I need to have gratitude right here, right now. That's a command, amen. And then he said a famous phrase, I bet you all have probably had a refrigerator magnet that said this, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you know what that means? It means because he's so good to us, we have a feeling of joy that erupts in our life, and when we have that joy, it strengthens our spirit, which strengthens our bones, which gives us strength and energy to keep going. That's what it means. If we're gonna build God's way, we need to keep him at the center at all times. Pick it up in chapter eight, verse 13. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found in it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Huh. First thing that caught my attention was the leaders of the people went to study the Bible to figure out what they should do. And how cool would it be to have leaders of our society say, hey, pastor, can you just meet with me? I'm going to be running and judging and governing and doing all this stuff. I would love to know what we should be doing. That'd be cool. But here's the thing. They found out they were supposed to have a festival. The festival is a feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths. And it's simply this. For seven days, you're supposed to build a little lean-to in your yard and live in it outside. It's a bunch of instructions on how to do it, and 
But really, it's a temporary structure. You only build for seven days and you tear it down. Everybody's got to be in there except infants, sick, or people that were doing the ministry during the festival. Other than that, everybody has to live in that. You build it for the festival, you tear it down at the end, everybody lives in a booth. Why? Because they're remembering the Israel wandering and how God provided for them when there was nothing. You see, we look at a booth and we go, man, that just makes life hard. Why would we celebrate that? And they're like, oh, you're missing it. We're in the desert with nothing. Those little booths were God's provision. He saved us miraculously for 40 years. And it was a celebration. Here's what the whole festival was about. Hang out with people and have fun. Oh, and while you're doing that, Make sure all those that don't have something, have something. So I want you to go around, be hospitable, and take care of people. That's it. So here's how I want to close out. God is our center. Church is our hub. Whatever your life looks like, it should be spreading out from the center, from Christ, from the church. And the local church becomes an anchor for you to become fully who you were designed to be. Church matters. Here we lift up the Lord's name. Here we study his word and seek his will. Here we challenge you to be your best. If we're going to build God's way, we need to keep him at the center of all time. As you leave, you know they read the word of God and they, the joy of the Lord was their strength. Here's how I want to close out. I'm going to tell you what the word says so your heart is full as you leave. You ready? This is it. God's word says that the King Jesus is on the throne and he is the name above all names. God's word says that one day Jesus will come and make things right, but until then the Holy Spirit is dwelling among us and will bring us through. God's word says that each of us is a masterpiece created by God to love us and that we are precious to him. God's word says that all suffering is temporary. God's word says that the Holy Spirit living in us is greater than Satan who's running around in the world. God's word says that he is with us always and nothing can separate us from his love. God's word says that you are a child of God and that means you are empowered and given authority over darkness. And God's word says that prayer matters and that it alters reality. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we lift up this time to you. We lift up our hearts to you, and we ask that you would remake us, that you would transform us, that you would change us, that, Lord, that we would become all that you designed us to be. May you be glorified in our midst, be glorified in our lives, be glorified in our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.